Today, I had the honor of talking with Jeff Heath. Jeff is the CEO of Freeform, which is a commercial space planning and design company. In our conversation today, Jeff and I talked about what it was like taking over the family business from his parents, what some of the pain points were, and how a transition like this took place. We also talk about the recent merge between Business Interiors of Idaho and Freeform. We dig into what it was like to merge companies, including branding, culture, and a new geographic location. Jeff has so many unique business insights when it comes to management that I think a lot of business owners and leaders can take away and learn from. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jeff Heath. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Drew. So you've had a lot of exciting stuff going on in your business that I want to touch on in a second. But first, for those of you who are not familiar with your company, can you give us just an overview on what Freeform does and what a typical engagement with your clients look like? We are a commercial interior design, space planning, and kind of provide the execution arm as well. So uh, we have seven full-time interior designers who you know, specialize on FF&E for people who aren't in, in our industry. That's primarily furniture. We have some modular wall products and that kind of stuff as well. Uh, we joked with several builders, you know, if you take the build the roof off of a building and turn it over and shake it out, um, all the stuff that stays is a builder, all the stuff that falls out is ours. So that's usually the easiest way for people to understand. We work with the government. Um, we have several government contracts. We work with universities. We work with healthcare um, big medical providers, um, the standard commercial sec sector as well, higher education. So those are kind of the main groups that we work with. Engagements can range from someone who needs help with a home office all the way to, you know, 70,000 square foot office building or medical building. So, and obviously the length of those really vary. And the more complex, usually the better for us. Um, it's really good when we can integrate with the architects and the contractors and, and be involved early. Very cool. And so your parents started the business in 1985. What was it like as a kid growing up in a family of entrepreneurs? Do you have any early memories of what it was like growing up in the family that owned, you know, the local business interiors of Idaho? Oh, yeah. I think um, probably with a lot of kids, you know, the same, their parents are entrepreneurs. It's you know, a lot of work. They were they were building this thing, and it wasn't. Um, it was a small mom and pop shop. They were kind of doing all things. I remember being a little kid. My mom would pick me up from daycare and come home, and I always knew if she put on sweats, she'd be staying home and doing dinner and all that stuff. If uh, she put on jeans, that meant she was going back to work, and so that always made me sad as a little kid. Um, but yeah, was around the business a lot. I don't think I really had a good understanding of what was going on. It's kind of a hard industry to conceptualize, especially as a, a little kid. But, you know, I knew the fundamentals of what we did and, and how it worked. And back then, obviously, pre-internet, it was very catalog and retail based. So it was, um, you know, a lot of variations of the same kinds of products on the floor. For, for many years, it was rows and rows of black chairs and mahogany desks and leather chairs and things like that. I had a friend actually, or several friends when I came back to the business before we redid the showroom, like, what does that place do? That place that you work at, like looks dark all the time. And I never see anybody in there. All the employees worked on the second floor. He's like, I always thought that place was a drug front. 
And so uh, we kind of shifted from that model, right? A lot of our stuff isn't really retail. It's more concept-based. A lot of our design happens, you know, in a 3D model, you know, digitally. And so our showroom is much more about concepts. Our showroom is, you know, a place where we work. It was designed for our how our team wants to work. So it's not going to apply to every customer that we work with. So it's important that they understand when they understand that when they come in and tour our space. But we have a really broad mix of products in our space. And so it's more about here's how we use this product. Here's how it's applied to other customers. Here's how it could work for you. And then we design something custom, uh, as I mentioned, in the 3D model that is more applicable to them. So it's, it's been a pretty big shift in how we do business, um, you know, how the world does business, I guess, how people think about office space. There's been a lot of paradigms that have, you know, caused things to become more complex in our world and, um, you know, forced us to, to become more sophisticated. Yeah. So did the, the pivot from, you know, you're walking in, you got the rows of desks and chairs now. I mean, I've been in your office personally, it's showroom concept. Like you said, did that pivot happen when you took the business over? Was that something that was happening before you did talk to me just like when you knew you needed to make that change and how it happened? Yeah. So that was one of the first initiatives I took on. Um, the business, my parents had done a really good job and they, you know, the business had been around for a long time. It had been profitable, good business, but especially in the last few years had really stagnated. Um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, specific direction on here's where we need to go. Here's what the future of workplace looks like. Here's how we support our clients in that process. It was process. It was more of, you know, we have existing customers, we're taking care of them. We're selling and designing to specifications that already exist. And in that process, I have a marketing degree, so that's kind of how I came back into the business in a marketing slash, you know, kind of business development front. And I met with a lot of designers in the local community, and I asked them, you know, what do you like about our brand? What do you not like about our brand? How do we compare to the competition? What do you think about us when, you know, you're talking to your customers or when you think about the potential options you have? And we got a lot of feedback that our showroom was really bad. <laughs> Some people tried to spin it in a more positive light of, you know, you have a lot of options. Uh, you don't just align with one thing, which is common in our industry, um, which choice is good, but obviously you can't be all things to all th people. So um, kind of being a little bit more focused in what we wanted to do and leading the pack from kind of an ideation standpoint was a big initiative. So we remodeled the first floor, did that. And then the second floor, jokingly called it the chair graveyard for a long time. This is where all the freight damage stuff went, just sat there. It was, the lights were usually off. It was kind of gnarly up there. And so we redid all that and we now have tenants up there. So it's all of our product, but we also lease it. So we have a co-working space up there uh, that we lease to people on a monthly basis. Um, we also have, we donate a few spots. ULI is up there, the Urban Land Institute, um, nonprofit, and then BOMA, Building Owners Managers Association also has a seat up there. So it's a good way to give back and support nonprofits and let people use our conference rooms and that kind of stuff. Then also Duft Waterson, their marketing firm, they rent another third up there. So it's just nice to have more people in the space, have better energy and have a larger variety of products and have it built out as a modern usable space, not just, you know, the bargain chair basement or whatever. Yeah. Did you always know you wanted to get into the family business? Um, like, when, when did you know that this is something you wanted to be in long-term and take it over? Um, so I'd say I'd probably actively avoided it as long as possible. I went to school at University of Idaho. I've always liked 
uh, being outdoors. And so I was thinking about getting a forest products degree or some sort of outdoor related degree. And my parents were like, well, okay, that's great. You can dual major, but you're also going to get a business degree. <laughs> and so um, I did that for a while. And then when I realized that the load was going to be too much, I just stuck with the business stuff. I had a lot of friends in the program. So it made it, it was an interesting route and it was a easier route to kind of stick with. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't admit that. I learned a lot. It was good. <laughs> uh, and then I was up selling medical devices in Spokane, knees and hips. So I was in a lot of surgeries and my parents called me one day and were like, we're going to sell everything if you don't come back. So that's how I came back. There you go. And maybe that provides insight on the next question, but can you describe how the transition with your parents went? Was it easy for them to transition to you because you're their son they knew you take good care and they knew they could still kind of watch over it or were there some reservations of them letting it go it was honestly one of those silver linings types things i don't think um up front they really had a plan i i think they knew eventually that that was going to be the goal but there was no plan or structure or path to make that happen so i'd been back for I don't know, it'd probably been two years doing various kind of marketing and PD things. You know, I asked a lot of questions around, you know, why haven't we tried this yet? Or why haven't we done this? Or have we thought about going to the market this way? And so I just started incrementally implementing those things to the point where I was like, okay, well, I think, you know, we're driving enough business that I can help organize the sales team and focus that. So I started doing that. Then unfortunately, around that same time, my sister um, was living down in California and had a one-year-old daughter and was diagnosed with pretty aggressive breast cancer. And um, my parents basically told me, okay, we got to go help with your sister. We're going to pack up and go down there for as long as it takes to, you know, make sure everything's good. And that's when my dad turned to me and said, Hey, do you want to be CEO? And I was like, I literally haven't seen the balance sheet ever, or, you know, profit and loss <laughs> or anything. It's like, are you sure this is what we want to do? I think I could do it. And he was like, yeah, we'll figure that out. So they just kind of left. I hired a uh, COO, Doug. He's still here with us today and uh, kind of took off from there. So it was kind of a, a forced thing. And then when my parents came back, my mom came back and was walking through and kind of looked around. I was like, well, I guess there's not anything for me to do here anymore. And I kind of said, yeah, well, you know, we couldn't just hold your, she was doing, you know, two or three roles really couldn't hold those spots open indefinitely. And then, a lot of my friends like to joke, you know, I, I threw them a, a surprise retirement party. So that's how the final phase out went. So when they, they came back, they realized they were, they were out. Yeah. The surprise retirement party, they'd been back for a little bit and I was texting my sister. I was like, okay, set them up, tell them we're going to go to dinner downtown, park in this parking lot and then we'll walk over to the office. And there was, you know, 70 people waiting in the parking lot. We had a stage and there was a band and they're in shock, but I think it was a good way to do it. Nice. And if you don't mind, can you speak just a little bit on the logistics of the transition, how, how it was structured? Did you have an attorney or accountant in place, financial advisor to help you set up the transition? Was it just kind of agreed upon that you were going to take it over? How, how did that work? Um, yeah. So at first I didn't have, I assume you're referring to specifically like the ownership aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at first I didn't really have any ownership. I was just paid, um, CEO salary and bonused accordingly. And then, yeah, we did have a financial advisor that was pretty helpful throughout the process. And then our CPA who'd been with my parents since 
basically they started this the business so he has pretty good insight into kind of the inner workings of the business and saw the growth um, associated with some of the stuff I was doing so he really advocated for me that was super helpful to have some people that my parents trusted um, kind of advocating for a responsible and well thought out handoff so we did some gifting up front the first two or the first real chunk uh, was gifting and we broke it up into pieces because we didn't know the exact timeline and then as you probably know right there's minority discounts associated with doing smaller pieces um, and made it more palatable for me from from a purchase standpoint um, so the first few pieces went that way and then as we got further down the road we went kind of an owner carry note so i have a, a decent amount of debt that I'm kind of working off for my parents just paying out of, out of the profits. Great. Yeah. And so we finished the last bit of the transition this summer. So now I own hundred percent of the company. Cool. Looking back just on through the transition and the business pivot, is there anything that you do differently if you're do it all over again? Uh, hmm. Negotiate for a lower sell price. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think most things went pretty smooth. Um, I don't think so. I think it all went pretty well. It would have been nice to do it a little bit sooner. Uh, there was, I mean, the challenge, and I think several people who talk to other people in family businesses and they experience this as well, um, that are S corps who take on some sort of owner carry note while the person that they're paying still has a portion of the ownership, right? And you have to make distributions that are proportional to, um, whatever you pull out. I don't know if there's really any way around that, but that was challenging while, you know, I didn't hold all the ownership because obviously it was kind of a, a double whammy on pulling cash out of the business to, to pay off the rest of the ownership. Yep. Um, there was some exciting news announced relatively, relatively recently this year about a merger between the former business interiors of Idaho and Freeform. Can you Tell me more about how the merger came about and why it was something you even considered in the first place. Yeah. So I've been, um, there's been a lot of consolidation in our industry. I think a lot of industries saw this during COVID, but there was a lot of um, businesses, probably similar size to what we were, that were kind of more the mom and pop that didn't have a true succession plan. Um, so there was a lot of acquisitions that happened even prior to COVID um, and consolidation that went with that. So for example, one of our main competitors in Boise, they're based out of Salt Lake. They have locations in St. George, Reno, Las Vegas, Boise, um, Salt Lake, obviously. And so they have much more uh, broader capabilities as it relates to specific niche things and marketing. And so there's this constant competition between these larger dealers and then also, you know, still being lean enough to be profitable, but provide your customers the service they deserve. And so it's something I've been thinking about for a while, the whole kind of grow or die philosophy, like what do we need to do to continue to make sure that the people on our team have a path for growth, right? We have a lot of, uh, you know, people earlier in their, in their careers that want, want to grow and want to be able to, you know, gain new skill sets as they progress. And so that was one aspect of the growth. The, one, the other is, as I mentioned, you know, being able to provide good value and services to our customers and, so knew I wanted to grow for a while and I've been looking at it. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I lived in Spokane for a little bit and I knew how similar the market was to ours just in terms of, and the population of the city is super similar. The demographics are super similar. The median income is very similar level of education, um, kind of people's interests. And 
I had noticed that people or companies from Portland and Seattle would try and call in those markets. They also try and call in Boise as well. And that, you know, it works in some cases, but people would rather do business with local people or people from a market that's more similar to theirs. So I kind of set my sights on um, doing more business in the inland Northwest. And I consider that, um, you know, Eastern Washington, Oregon, all of Idaho and Western Montana. We don't really do much with Western Montana, but I would say, similar sort of ideology is Idaho and Spokane. And so knew I wanted to grow that for a while, got approval from our main manufacturer to start distributing up there, hired a few people, got a showroom and we were making progress. We were selling projects, uh, but it was slow and um, kind of not as, yeah, not as fast and not as impactful as we wanted. Um, There was some other consolidation in our industry with Miller Knoll. And so there was a dealer up there that, um, you know, their, their main manufactured that they're distributing merged. So that meant that their competitor would have access to the line. So that was Fernando and Freeform. So that's when we started talking and thought, I mean, we had very similar, uh, you know, cultures, very similar value sets, very similar interests in growing the, the business, very similar ideas of what markets that would cover. And so there was just a lot of synergies there. And, um, we began talking and, and thought it would be a good idea to come together. So. That's why we did that. And he's him and his team have brought some good um, values and aspects to our team. And we've tried to kind of round it out, you know, with the back of house services that we have and some of the larger, you know, marketing and uh, back end services that we can provide. Nice. And so Business Interiors of Idaho took the branding as of recently of Freeform. Why did you decide to transition the name and branding? What were some of the items behind the scenes that influenced the brand change as well? So I'd been wanting to update the brand for a while, uh, partially because of the geographic thing I mentioned. I knew that I wanted to expand geographically for quite a while. And business interiors of Idaho is pretty geographically distinct. And I'm not sure if people in Spokane, I don't, I don't know if they really care, but it's also just kind of a weird thing. It's also very antiquated name from how I view it. If, if you go back to Hayworth um, headquarters, they have like 12 dealers that are business interiors of whatever, name of the state, region, city, whatever. Staples even used to have a furniture division called business interiors that they recently dissolved. So it was overused. It was um, geographically not accurate. It's not really accurate to the kind of business we're doing anymore. Like I mentioned, we do work with hospitals and higher ed and the government and we do outdoor spaces and we do hospitality and multifamily. So it just wasn't a descriptive name anymore. And I wanted a name that kind of brought us into the future and allowed us flexibility with where we go and um, abilities to add additional skill sets under our umbrella and add value to kind of other trade partners and, and uh, customers. Nice. How has it been merging the two companies? You've already spoke a little bit from a staffing standpoint that you added some good good talent there, but can you speak to just from a staffing standpoint, how, how has it been merging two cultures, two probably two different expectations of companies? Like, can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I was actually just talking to somebody about this yesterday um, as we were brainstorming around some culture stuff. My parents... Um, are still together. They've been married for a long time. So I've never been part of a divorced family, but what I imagine it's probably like, you know, two parent, two, uh, 
you know, different families getting married and the step families coming together, all the step kids, like trying to understand what the other step kids want and how, you know, how the rules are going to apply and who makes the decisions and all of that stuff. Um, so I think that's probably the closest analogy I can use. I mean, even though our, our values align, right, we all want the same things. There's, you know, there's a learning curve associated with that. We're asking them to move over to different systems and use different manufacturers. And it, it's frustrating when you have to relearn things while you still have to deliver on the jobs you already have commitments to. So I understand that. And it's just, you know, re as you said, resetting expectations on how we make decisions and how we hold each other accountable. And, you know, all the, all the foundation is there. It's just all the nuance and, and stuff that happens in between with any new relationship, you know, rebuilding trust and making it clear that we're all, all in it for the same thing. And we're trying to support each other. And um, obviously the geographic distance was something that was new for us as well. You know, if there's a challenge or an issue here, you can walk over to somebody else's desk and look over their shoulder at whatever they're working on and help them out. And it's a little bit more challenging uh, when people are several hundred miles away. And, you know, if, if they know to ask for help, it's easy to, to provide that help. But sometimes, you know, people don't know what they don't know. So, and you can't just see or intuit that they're, they're having challenges. So there's definitely been some learning curve on, on how we help each other. Um, but I think the, the benefits are out definitely outweighing the challenges. What are some of the business operational items that you've had to adjust for the two different geographic locations? Cause I, I have a feeling post pandemic where we're at right now, a lot of businesses will be more multi in many regions. So what are some of the specific pain points you face and items or how you've had to change your operational procedures? Yeah, I'd say it varies. we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years really dialing in our operations from like the install perspective. We call it WD&I, warehouse delivery and installation, just to make it more efficient and uh, lean and less damage on site, less trash on site, that kind of stuff. Um, we have a really big, nice warehouse here. There's just a much smaller and it's attached to their building. So just some basic things like that, training people on new processes, um, you know, dealing with facilities that are different than what we're used to. There's things like that. Um, there's other things, you know, small as like we have five designers here and two designers up there. You know, we want to do a designer lunch. Like, what do we do with the designers in Spokane? Like, do we sit on Zoom and have lunch? Do we just pay for them to have lunch with each other? Do I fly up there and have lunch with them separately? You know, just all the small things, I think, that, you know, make up culture, right? The interaction, the time you spend together and that kind of stuff just trying to navigate that and trying to invest in good technology so that when we're in meetings, it's clear and people can hear and they can feel like they're involved and contributing. Uh, we've, yeah, we've spent a lot of money on travel. I'm convinced one of my love languages is uh, quality time. So I don't know if that's why I feel that way, but I think it's hard to build a good relationship if you don't physically spend time with the other per with the other person and understand kind of what drives them and how they interact. So there's been a lot of, Luckily, it's a nice, quick, affordable flight from Boise to Spokane and vice versa. What has been the biggest pain point of the merge for you as a as the CEO? I think the process pieces of it have been pretty challenging. A, because they had a bit different process, but B, because, you know, it immediately made us bigger by 10 people. And 
if, if you've ever hired a person, you know, you know that onboarding can be challenged, but it's basically like hiring 10 new people all at once, even though they know the industry basically have to retrain on all the processes, policies, procedures, manufacturers, design logic, all that kind of stuff. So I think that was the, it, it um, definitely held a magnifying glass to the areas where our process could have been improved. I know you are a user of the EOS or implementer of the EOS system. Uh, is that something you've carried on through the merge? And if so, was Freeform on that? And how, how have their, those previous employees responded to being brought up in this new operating system? Yeah, EOS is really good. Um, awesome framework. I think it helped them more quickly understand a lot of the fundamental characteristics of our organization through the VTO, you know, our core values, our purpose, our, our three, our 10 year goals, our, um, you know, this year goals kind of spells all that out and makes it easy to understand. So that was a big, um, helpful asset of the tool. I think, especially for a smaller company, I think they had much less structured meetings and process associated with that. So at first there was a lot of concern about the number of meetings, you know, the L10s, um, where you, process issues and delegate and resolve challenges as a team. Um, that was a little bit of a learning curve for them. And I think we're still learning on it, but I think everybody understands the value now. So I think just understanding why EOS works the way it does is um, for anybody implementing the first time around can be challenging, but yeah, it's definitely still use it. I'd say as we've grown and we need to defi better define certain aspects of our company. We've kind of plugged in some additional philosophy in areas. Like I wouldn't say that EOS is super robust in its sales training or um, sales philosophy. I would say it's more operationally minded, but so rounding out, just adding, filling out in some of the cracks there. Cool. I've gotten to know you more this year and we've talked quite a bit um, just about how you lead your organization and you're very humble, and you're in charge of a lot of people in a large business now at a young age. Can you talk to me about your experience being a young manager, and to be frank, a young manager with you know a lot of responsibility? You're you're running a big company. Um, what's that been like? What are some of the things you've learned along the way? Pr pretty broad question. <laughs> Hopefully, I can satisfactorily answer it. Um, I think the one thing I've struggled with being a young leader, right, and especially. I was reading a book recently and they were talking about, you know, gurus and like, or a teacher, you know, whoever you're learning from in your, your life or your career or whatever. And there's the teacher, you know, that kind of draws you towards all the right things and shows you the correct path for improvement. But then there's also equally as important, the teachers of, you know, I don't want to be like that person. <laughs> the way that they treat their people is terrible or what they do is the wrong thing. And it's very obvious. And so I think earlier in my career, um, I'd had some bad managers and so I was very afraid of being a bad manager or a, a stubborn manager or inflexible manager. So I was probably overly flexible um, and or maybe not overly flexible, but I didn't make decisions fast enough. I wasn't direct enough and I wasn't clear enough in kind of my expectations and um, expectations for the team. So I'd say that's probably the biggest takeaway I've had and that it's possible to still you know, have compassion and treat people respectfully and consider other people's opinions while still making decisions quickly and effectively. Um, so I'd say that's probably one of the biggest takeaways I've had. And I, I think it's something I'm still working on. It's still challenging, right? Especially when you're do dealing with 
a broad group of people from, you know, designers all the way to installers. They have very different communication styles. They have very different desires with their career. And so um, I think understanding how to adjust my communication style and, you know, speak to people in a way that they understand per position or per department, um, you know, that impacts them while still being, you know, honest and clear and um, consistent with what our, what our goals and plans are. Say the big thing. And then, I mean, as with anybody, I think who's in a leadership position, it's, it's challenging and stressful to know that all those people's jobs and livelihood are dependent upon the decision that you and the others that you choose make. So, you know, balancing that anxiety and making sure it's a, it's a healthy, constructive, um, productive anxiety <laughs> that, and, and when it's not, you know, finding ways to address that in a positive way that, um, doesn't negatively impact the team, I think, or some of the things I've really been focusing on lately. And one thing that's been awesome, I think, is being a young leader is there's a lot of people who want to help, like both in our industry or other businesses in the community. Um, you know, very few times have I had people turn me down when I've said like, hey, I have some questions about how to do this thing, or I have this idea, but I don't really know how to do it. So there's been a lot of other really good business leaders that have been really helpful in helping me understand and improve and provide feedback and share their experiences and where they made mistakes and where they did well. I think that's a good philosophy to have is if you can learn from someone else's mistake, it's a lot easier than figuring it out yourself through your own bad decisions. You've, you've touched on kind of some of the key hires that you've made as you've through the transition of you taking the business over specifically, I know you mentioned COO, CFO, and just from conversations, it's like, it seems like you're really good at delegating to like, you let them do their job. You know, they're the expert in that. Can you speak to why delegating and kind of, while you're the CEO, it's probably easy to get your hands in every single area, but I feel like you do a good job of like letting them run with what they're good at. Can you speak to like why that's been important or if that's been a focus at all? Yeah, that's funny. Um, we were in one of our leadership meetings and somebody made a comment. They're like, Jeff's actually really good at delegating. And I responded, you know, well, the key here is you just, if you don't know how to do that stuff, then you can't do it. Like you have to delegate it to somebody, <laughs> which is a pro and con, right? I mean, if you look back at how my parents started the business, they had to do everything. It was also, the process was simpler. There was less things to do. Um, but they, they did everything. So there was less delegation. Um, conversely, you know, I have to delegate a lot of things just because of the complexity and the time required to get them done. But I think you're right. It's a challenge. Um, cause I think with most leaders, right, we're in a position where we can see, you know, we're not driving in on the details as much. So we have a more global perspective and we can see how all the pieces come together and work and how one decision affects another decision and, and some of those things. So sometimes I find myself getting caught in with some of those other people, uh, maybe providing more direction than I should. Sometimes I'll notice something that's not quite right and I won't provide as much direction as I should. So that's um, back to the young leader thing. Something I'm still really working on trying to figure out is how do I provide feedback and direction without being overbearing or without, um, you know, letting them figure out things for themselves. So I think there's, there's some of that going, but yeah, I just think that there's no way to scale unless you have people that you can trust and who can share the load and share the work because, I mean, I would say, you know, finance, specifically financials are probably a weakness of mine. And 
you know, there's people I know that if I can get them into that role, they're just going to do a better job. They're going to see things I don't see. They're going to, you know, find ways to systemize t- things that I can't. Um, and I think it's just the, the classic kind of theory of division of labor. What are the tasks that you just can't stand doing that you haven't delegated yet? Oh, that I haven't delegated? Or just, yeah, stuff that comes <laughs> up that is a pain point for you. I would say I find myself least happy when I'm reviewing numbers all the time. I feel like um, there's so much that I enjoy doing in the business that's not monetarily related. Like, I think my mom always told me, uh, if you're good at your job and you do it consistently, the money will just come. And I feel like sometimes if I spend too much time in the in the numbers, I, I focus on the wrong things. And so there, there's that piece of it, definitely. Um, I think the other thing, uh, as I mentioned before, is like we're still coaching a lot of people up into leadership positions. And there's and especially as we grow and we grow quickly, there's we encounter situations that we've never encountered before. And so it's hard for them to know what to do. It's hard for me to know how to coach them on it. So um, in the last probably three or four months, I've spent way more time kind of all the way in, hands in the details, kind of supporting things through, actually delivering on some of the things to help show the team what what my right sometimes you have an idea and it's hard to explain exactly what that idea looks like you can draw it out you can write it up but people don't fully understand what that means sometimes until they see it in action so i've kind of taken that philosophy right now and i don't think that can exist forever um just because there's not enough time but i think that's that's what needs to happen right now as they kind of get comfortable in their newly um, evolving roles as we approach the end of the year, I'm sure you and your team are already planning for 2023. How do you go about setting organizational goals as a team together? And how do you get everyone to buy in and push push the ship forward together? Yeah, so I'd say um, historically, we probably haven't done as good as we can financially goal setting. Um, with the merger and our recent growth, um, we've developed a lot more models and tools um, to kind of understand where our business is, you know, where our cash flow needs to be, where, um, you know, how, like what level of cash balance we need to have to be able to fulfill our orders and, um, what our running pipeline is going to look like, where our sales are coming from, where we need to target a lot of things like that. So this year specifically, we've been spending way more time on forecasting and planning and understanding what you know, break even is going to look like with a considerably larger company and um, other growth plans as well. And so that's so as a leader, we were just talking about that this morning, just being way clear with the team, what the financial expectations are like, this is our break even, this is where we need to make money, correlating end of your uh, bonuses specifically to some sort of net profit goal. And having it be very, very clear, you know, you can expect this percent of your salary as a, as a bonus, if we can hit these tiered goals, so just really um, setting very clear expectations and goals um, from the financial perspective sooner so that everybody can get their heads wrapped around that and then breaking it down. You know, okay, if this is our company goal, this is our Boise goal, this is our Spokane goal, this is our, um, you know, this sales team goal and kind of like boiling it down and down and down so they know exactly what accounts it's going to be coming from, um, where they need to be spending their time, where they need to be spending their energy. So that's kind of like the numbers aspect of it. But then also, you know, we use EOS as well. So we'll have our two-day planning session where we set priorities for the leadership team for next year, um, what sets the company's goals and rocks, 
and then that'll trickle out to the departments as well. And they'll kind of build off the backbone of those, those leadership planning session goals. Cool. How do you continue to learn and improve just from a business and business education standpoint? Um, so I'm a YPO member and there's a lot of, um, organizations that are much more successful and well-developed than mine. So there's a lot of people that I can ask questions from there, um, and learn from also listen to kind of varies, whether it's podcasts or books, not as many podcasts right now, a lot of books, um, different philosophies and kind of understanding. We also have a peer group of, um, people who do what we do all around the country and they've been, we have two annual meetings. And, uh, so we meet there and kind of share ideas and exchange ideas. And also they're always available on a call. So constantly doing that kind of stuff. One of our core values is Kaizen, which is the idea of kind of continual, gradual, consistent growth. And, um, yeah, I think we're always looking for ways to improve, but always listening for other concepts. Is there a way to reconsider this? Is there a way to tweak this ever so slightly? And I think the more, the more you surround yourself with people who are also interested in those things and um, find outlets or tools, the more knowledge you have in your brain, the more connections get made. That's one thing that I find that's interesting. It's like sometimes, you know, you add all this information and nothing happens for a while, then you might hear one more thing and it all kind of like locks together. But if you didn't have that framework of those four books you listened to, you wouldn't have the ability to understand what was being implied in that fifth. So it's just like, keep dumping it in there. And then when something clicks, it'll happen. Right. And you just keep showing up every day. Do you have a few favorite business books that you recommend most people read? Um, we have our whole team read a book called, and it's not specifically about like business practices. I think there's always the greats, right? There's, you know, Patrick Lencioni, all of his books and there's, um, Stephen Covey and his kind of books. I love his sales philosophy because it's really focused on what's the what's the best outcome for the customer. And um, I think that ties in really well with our business philosophy. And if, you know, people can feel that if you have their best intentions in mind, that it's just easier to do work together. Um, and so I think he's got a lot of really good ones. But the book that I make everybody on our team read is called Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. And it's told as an anecdote, which is kind of, or, you know, a story and which I think is kind of silly for some people, but it, and it's not really even focused on business. It's more focused on like, how do we communicate with one another? How do we deal with issues when we have them? How do we reframe um, challenges from maybe someone else's perspective so that we can work through them more effectively? And um, I'd say that's the backbone of our conversations is is how are we communicating and how are we showing up to one another and our customers to try and get things done rather than, you know, once again, if you have those core values and you have that framework for how we make decisions, then you add on that other knowledge and skill set and it, it fills it out. But without that backbone of kind of shared alignment on how we, how we communicate the rest of it's worthless. That's awesome. I, I, I haven't, I haven't read that book, so I'm going to put it on my list. <laughs> Yeah, probably the worst title on a book I've ever heard of. And I have to like give everybody a disclaimer. I'm like embarrassed every time I have to say the name of the book, but I think the content is really, really good. Oh, that's what matters. So that's good. Uh, I'm going to. They have another book called The Anatomy of Peace, which is more focused on like, I think it's the same concepts, but it's like for families. I feel like that's a little bit better of a name than leadership and self deception. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'm going to close with two pretty broad questions here so you can take them where you want. But what's the biggest piece of advice you have for business owners and, and leaders within companies? Oh, man. I don't know. I don't think I'd give that kind of advice very much. I think always be hungry to learn. And one thing that's clicked for me and I see some people struggle with is just showing up every day. It's like you might not have the answers or it might not be clicking today, but it was kind of like what I said about reading books. You have to keep showing up and making it happen. And then finally it'll come together. And you might not see what that path looks like at the time or might not be clear exactly how it's going to come together. But if you keep showing up, it'll, it'll happen. I like that. And then last question that I ask everyone, what excites you the most right now? What are you looking forward to in the future? I don't know if it's exciting or terrifying. I think I told you before we started recording, but uh, my wife, Jessica, we're about to have a baby due dates December 7th. So it's one of those things where I like, don't even really know how to be excited because I've never had a child before. I mean, I have nieces, but <laughs> it's not my own and it's totally different. But that's it's definitely going to be a whole different world with that. And that'll be cool and exciting. And um, yeah, that's awesome. Fun, fun, new chapter. Yeah, that's awesome. Jeff, I'll make sure to link all this in the show notes. But where can people find you? I'll link your website, uh, your LinkedIn profile if you want. But where else can people find you or get a hold of you if you want? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure all our golden handle for all our socials is Freeform Spaces, um, S-P-A-C-E-S. And because, yeah, apparently now since we've adopted the brand, you know, there's Freeform TV and like 500 other Freeform things. <laughs> and then our website is the same thing, freeformspaces.com. So that's where you can see all that stuff. And obviously my name's Jeff Heath, so you can find me on LinkedIn that way. Cool. Well, Jeff, I enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to uh, revisiting this soon. Yeah. Thanks for the time, Drew. Appreciate it.